Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinnian. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, it's a little different episode this week as we are repurposing my appearance on the very good 49th Parahel podcast uh, for this episode. Uh, so on this pod, I talk with Rob Rousseau, the host of 49th Parahel, about a couple things, the NBA Wildcat strike and, and what workers can learn from it, uh, you know, why Christian Freeland's Nazi collaborator grandpa matters in 2020. Uh, the Conservative Party of Canada's, you know, new leader and thumb, Aaron O'Toole, and really where the kind of conservative movement in Canada is going. But I also want to take this opportunity to talk about some original content that we have on the theprogressreport.ca that we're quite proud of. We broke the story of the Edmonton police getting a new tank, and Jeremy Appel wrote a very nuanced and well-researched piece on the Christopher Freeland Nazi grandpa stuff uh, that we really like, we really think you should read. So please head uh, to theprogressreport.ca and check that out. And we've taken kind of a bit of a minor step back over the summer from the podcast, uh, just for vacation, workload, mental health, and health reasons. But we are working on some like absolutely blockbuster, really big stories that are going to come out in the fall. So please keep an eye out for that. And if you like what we do, there are a few things you can do to help out. Please, you know, smash that like button and share our content. It's very helpful. Word of mouth advertising is obviously the most and best advertising we can get for our, uh, our little independent media project. If you have the time, please take a minute to leave a uh, a review on your kind of podcatcher of choice or Apple Podcasts. And the biggest thing you can do to help us is join the 250 and closing in on 300 folks who donate every month to help keep this independent media project going. So to do that, you go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. We would really, really appreciate it. It uh, keeps, you know, Jim and I fed and clothed in house. So please, please help out there if you can. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter, where I am, unfortunately, way too often, uh, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at duncank at progressalberta.ca. But without any further ado, here is my conversation with Rob Rousseau of 49th Parahel. It is encouraging again it's incredibly encouraging to see them come together to see a sense of collective struggle amongst those players and to see them you know do a wildcat strike arguably you know this is someone else's joke on twitter but the one instance of like the nickname for something being actually as cool as the thing that it is describing yeah, yeah absolutely and you know it's a lesson to everyone that's the, in, in any workforce right now they're like hey uh if we just withhold our labor that can kind of grind uh, the whole economy to a halt. And we can yeah, you... maybe use that power that we have to uh, extract some kind of political change. It would be interesting if more people kind of grasped that, the, the power that they have uh, yeah, as are workers. You, are you a teacher? Are you worried about reopening schools? Um, because yeah. I would fucking be. Uh, and, uh, and if you're a teacher, I mean, I think you can look like hilariously, you look, you can look to, at the NBA and, and a wildcat strike that's happening right now and be like, uh, yeah, um, this is a way that this is a tactic. This is a strategy that we can use to k- get what we want. I mean, I think every teacher wants to go back to work and teach, but I don't think they want to die from coronavirus. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't think so either. There, I think there's probably a way where we can reopen schools and have it be safe. But I, I mean, especially in Alberta where we live, like it's been a fucking joke and the reopening plan has been, um, yeah, just it's like here you go. Here are a couple masks, a couple thermometers, and some hand sanitizers. Go nuts, and yeah. uh, and that's kind of the extent of of what's being thrown at this problem. 
Yeah, and you saw, I saw just before we started talking an interview with Doug Ford in Ontario, just basically saying that, like, you know, uh, everyone else has stepped up, the nurses, the, the frontline healthcare workers, the doctors, the people in grocery stores, and people that are, are you know, putting themselves in harm's way uh, all this time. Now it's time for the teachers to, to sacrifice and step up. And it's like, well, Doug, I'm not sure it's quite so simple as that. <laughs> when they're, the teachers are not being put in a position, a position um to nurses make are getting, sure that things are as safe as possible. Nurses are getting medical grade PPE, you know, like yeah. <laughs> the teachers are getting a cloth mask and a, and a hand and a jar of hand sanitizer. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's it. Um, that's the kind of cool thing about that NBA wildcat strike. Even if it does end up being short lived, it does. It's a very profound lesson that people can learn about the type of power they have by withholding their labor. So it would be, it would be interesting if more people kind of grasp that. Um, but that, anyway, that's enough about the NBA. Uh, it was an interesting st- uh, storyline, obviously. Um, but uh, there's a couple other things that I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about that we should probably get to. And and number one, frankly, Duncan, I'm going to have to call you in uh, for uh, g- going after our um, very inspiring girl boss, deputy prime minister, and now finance minister as well, with some some Russian propaganda uh, I was very, you know, I consider you a friend. I, you know, I enjoy your work you do for the most part, but I saw this play out. It was very disappointing. What do you have nice. to say for yourself when you use the, when you use this, this vile attack on Christia Friedland, uh, to talk about just the, the minor inconvenience, uh, of her, her grandfather being a Nazi collaborator. What do you have yeah. to say for yourself, sir? I yes. How dare you, sir? How dare you, sir? <laughs> I must apologize. Uh, yeah. Um, as a feminist, I, I take full responsibility for my crimes and, uh, and yes, I will never mention the fact that Christian Freeland is an unapologetic booster of her Nazi collaborator grandfather, <laughs> which was, yeah, the tweets, the series of tweets that got me in trouble a little while back, uh, with, you know, a bunch of very online liberal types who do not like to be reminded of the inescapable truth that not only is okay. So the fact that Christian Freeland's grandfather is a Nazi collaborator, whatever, right? Like uh, we all have shitty family members in our orbits, right? Uh, That we are not sure. Definitely not responsible for, Um, you know, Um, but that's, that's not the context of, this criticism of her, right? Like Christian Freeland through her actions and her communications is part of an ongoing political project to whitewash the crimes of Nazi collaborators like, like her grandfather. And the reason yeah. why this all came up, right. Was because of, uh, it's, it's really, it's just like every year this pops up, she, she will say something about it, but it's black ribbon day, yes. which, which is a, a, essentially a day of remembrance, a holiday, if you will, um, that was essentially compares and equates the crimes of Stalinism and authoritarian communism and the Nazis final solution and Nazism. And this is, you know, a very deliberate political project of kind of like far right Eastern European nationalists. Uh, and, and you know, it's easy and, and they kind of frame it as like, never again will we let authoritarianism you know, murder yeah. people is the frame. And it's really easy to understand why they would approach it like that. Right. Because it's like, uh, you know, how, how can someone argue against the fact that Stalinism was bad or that Nazism was bad? But there is obviously uh, a kind of very key difference between those two political projects and like, you yeah. know, 
<laughs> well, and also the fact that, like, you know, Stalin and Stalinism was technically a, a, a played a huge role in defeating the Nazis and ending I mean, World War II. I mean, that too, right? Out of that conversation. Yeah, like the broader context of like Black Ribbon Day, like the Black Book of Communism shit is is like insane when you just kind of like think about it for a second, right? Like Hitler and Eva Braun were technically victims of communism, of the like 100 million people who were killed by communism or whatever the the number is. Yeah, it's like tied amount to kind of soft Holocaust denial, really, when you get into it. Yes, and people have made that argument uh, that like this kind of equating the crimes of the Final Solution, Nazi Germany, and Nazi Germany, the Shoah, to you know authoritarian communism and the crimes that they committed is you know they they are different and they are different in very specific ways that need to be remembered. And by directly comparing the two to each other, it it excuses the actions of Nazi collaborators uh, who. Um, you know, who, and this is what, and the reason why the story actually came up is because here in Canada, we have multiple monuments to Nazi, specifically Ukrainian Nazi yes. collaborators. Right. And this was really my entrance to the story and really why I went down the rabbit hole on Ukrainian Nazi collaborators is because here in Edmonton, we have two, we have two separate monuments to Nazi collaborator collaborators. We have a bust of Roman Shukovich who um, was a man who wore a Nazi uniform, was trained by the Abwehr, you know, Nazi military intelligence, and who was responsible for the murder of thousands, if not tens of thousands of Jews uh, as the military commander of the UPA. The, yeah, I can't remember what the actually stands for, but that UPA essentially. And, uh, and so we have a, lo- a lovely bust of him here in Edmonton. And then we also have a, a monument to the 14th Waffen SS division, um, which was the kind of at for the uh, Ukrainian, the Waffen SS division made up of Ukrainian volunteers. And uh, yeah, uh, the, and the issue was kind of brought forward into the national discourse by a story by David Pugliese. Some, um, some enterprising young folks, I assume they're young, spray painted the words yeah. uh, Nazi monument, I believe, on a cenotaph that was dedicated to this 14th Waffen SS division. And uh, amazingly, the uh, the local police uh, invest were investigating this as a hate crime until David Pugliese uh, for the Ottawa Citizen wrote his story. And everyone kind of pointed out that um, you're going to have to really explain to us how spray painting Nazi monument on a Nazi monument is a work is a hate crime. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was an incredible moment, too, because it was for for a lot of people in this country it was this kind of like wake up call to like, hey, why do we have these monuments in this country? Why was I not aware of this? I'm not really comfortable with this, uh, because until then, it, I think it was something that a lot of people take for granted. You know, of course, we're in, we're in Canada. We were obviously against the Nazis. We clearly, obviously, we don't have monuments to Nazis in this country. But that article led to a, a whole lot of people realizing that, like, okay, what's uh, what's going on with this history here that I was not totally uh, aware of. Yeah, we do have monuments to Nazis, or at least Nazi collaborators, right? And and like the Ukrainian diaspora here in Canada, it, it kind of came here in three waves. You've kind of got the like pre World War One, uh, like Austro Hungarian Habsburg Empire kind of folks who came here for free land, uh, mostly illiterate farmer types here out in the, especially out on the prairies, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and, and Alberta. And then you've kind of got an interwar wave of Ukrainian settlement here in Canada. Those tended to be like members of the Canadian Communist Party, to be honest. They tended to be quite kind of left, part of setting up things like Ukrainian labor temples. 
And then finally, you've got the post-World War II wave of uh, Ukrainian settlement here in Canada. And that one was dominated by, uh, you know, refugees from uh, kind of Nazi-occupied Ukraine. Or sorry, uh, Soviet-occupied Ukraine. And it was a very deliberate political project of Canada at that time to be importing folks who were, you know, not communists. <laughs> and one yeah. way to make sure that, that these folks, that to make sure that you were bringing in folks who were not communists was to bring in uh, Nazi collaborators. Yeah. Well, no, that's, it's a funny thing because when I, when this story broke and I was, I was talking about it online, I had people saying like, saying to me online, like, oh no, these weren't, these were not Nazis. You see, these were simply, um, uh, anti-communist militias that, uh, worked with the Nazis to carry out, you know, various crimes. And it's like, oh, okay, well that's in that case, then I guess it's good that we have monuments to these folks. Uh, Thank you country. for that important clarification, yeah. sir. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. But, but yeah, it is, it is wild. Like this is the world we live in. And, and by and large, you know, the Ukrainian diaspora community has not really reckoned with their role in the Holocaust, right? Like Germany has kind of had a proper sit down and has kind of mostly gone to therapy and dealt with the fact that they murdered 6 million Jews. Um, but the Ukrainian far right nationalists sure as hell haven't. And they have not kind of really had that moment for reflection. And and then when you bring up the fact that, you know, these monuments to Nazi collaborators and uh, exist, um, they dismiss it out of hand as, you know, a Russian op. It's all a Russian op, essentially. Yeah. And that's that was essentially the same line that Freeland used when this was brought up back in 2017, this, this kind of original, uh, the story when it was originally kind of in the media, in the discourse three years ago. Freeland's response was, uh, nah, it's all a Russian op. And then it kind of became inescapable like the academic record on this is ex incredibly clear like her grandfather's papers were essentially given to the provincial archives of alberta and those papers included all of the the newspapers that he printed when he was the, essentially the like uh, head of a newspaper slash propaganda operation in lviv as well as vienna and uh and and so <laughs> uh, so it became kind of inescapable that like the, the facts were true like regardless of whether the russians were peddling this uh these facts the facts are the facts yeah. the history is the history <laughs> like mikhailo chomiak uh you know christian freeland's grandfather was uh was a nazi collaborator the the record is clear and there's really um calling it a russian op is just a, just a very stupid and simple obfuscation and really just like dodge right yeah and i mean and you pointed out how ukraine never really has had a uh, or sorry the ukraine i don't mean to screw that up i know that's the proper terminology um <laughs> but you mentioned how uh, there's never really been a reckoning for the the crimes that were committed in that era and and freeland's really emblematic of that and her the way she talks about the relationship with her grandfather because as you pointed out no one i think would hold it against friedland for having a a relative that was a nazi if she was kind of contrite about this or kind of you know it indicated that she was like opposed to his views or the things that he did and or said in his life uh, but really this is someone that she's kind of celebrated and talked about as being an inspiration uh and has downplayed any of these these you know factual crimes that we know happened 
Uh, and that's why uh, I, I, I don't believe it is, uh, you know, unfair to continue pointing this out, especially when she's peddling this stuff about Black Ribbon Day, the big black book of communism, victims of communism, stuff like this. Um, you know, I think that's a pretty clear line between the way she's defended uh, her, her grandfather's career of career and some as an inspiration with what she's currently doing um, with regards to um, you know, talking about communism and in terms of like the for- role she's playing in our foreign policy, uh, overthrow- trying to overthrow the government in Venezuela and Bolivia and these socialist nations. Like there's a direct link between the ideology there that's being that's going along through the generations. Yeah, like it took us a while to get there, but that is that is the core of it. the The reason why the Christopher Freeland's Nazi grandfather is important and why we need to talk about it is because of what she has said about him, and what she has said about him publicly as part of her political persona, as part of her political messaging. Right, like the. It, like there's a quote I have. Uh, there's a quote that's that's from a 2016 tweet that she put out uh, in regards to Black Ribbon Day, and it is. Let me just pull it up here. Uh, it's uh, it's a great one. It's freedom and democracy. Here we go. So this is a 2016 tweet from Christopher Freeland from her Twitter account. Uh, she's talking about her grandparents. They were forever grateful to Canada for giving them refuge and worked hard to bring freedom and democracy to Ukraine. I am proud to honor their memory today. Hashtag Black Ribbon Day. You might want to ask the Jews of Ukraine about the freedom and democracy that Mikhailo Chomiak brought to them because they were murdered (laughs) or driven out of the country. And he was, you know, printing anti-Semitic, you know, articles and packages and recruiting for the sending out, like putting out promotional material for the 14th Waffen SS division. You know what I mean? Like her black ribbon day, you know, seeks to kind of make this equivalency between communism and Nazism. That tweet makes you kind of think that her father may have been a victim of Nazism. Grandfather was not a victim of Nazism. It was a willing collaborator, one who collaborated yeah. for five years before coming to Canada. Um, it, it, this is why it is important. And she said, uh, like other things, uh, there's a Davide Mistrace piece that kind of goes into this in detail as well about kind of what she said about uh, her grandfather. Yes. Yeah, that was in Passage um, when I shared that today as well. Uh, everyone should check out. Um, so regardless of like the... The fact that like this is this is indeed important to talk about, um, and not not irrelevant in any way to her her current sort of political persona and the the political project she's kind of pursuing here and abroad. I mean, yeah, she, um, just to interrupt, she's like she's also the second most powerful elected official yes. in Canada. Like she like this is this is not just some like people when people like oh well my grandfather was a I'm not a member of the Hitler Youth or whatever like pick out my grandfather was a piece of shit. It's like sure, but like. Your your grand you are not the second most powerful elected official in Canada, and you were not part of an ongoing uh, political project to like whitewash his crimes and not account for them. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, and like very much kind of in line to be our our next prime minister too. If like kind of the I'm sure in the this kind of behind the scenes. Oh, uh, so many liberals <laughs> are yes, very much. I think getting sick of JT and would love the strong, competent management of our neoliberal order from someone like like Christian definitely. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, so regardless of the fact that you were kind of in the right on this, you did end up getting like dogpiled a little bit uh, for pointing this out. Um, 
what was that like? Like, what was the what was the response like uh, to to these statements that you made? Even though you know, it's, I think it's ridiculous because oh, it's it's all bullshit. I mean, have, yeah. tw- Twitter actually gave me a quite handy pop, and it's like seems like you're getting a lot of replies. Uh, would you like to turn a filter on? And you can turn if this ever <laughs> happens to you, turn on the filter where uh, if you if they don't follow you, you can't see their tweets. Yes, I've had to use this many. And in <laughs> fact, I, this is the only way I'm able to use Twitter now. So I would recommend that as yeah, well. Yeah, turn on that filter. It's fantastic. Anyways, but yeah, this is bullshit. Who cares? Right? Right. Like it's just like liberals angry at you or just kind of using bad faith arguments that like you're being sexist. Uh, you're trying to drag down this woman. It's like, um, yeah, she, like the fact that she's a woman does not excuse all of the like has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Like you just don't want to see her um, like, you know, held to account, which is like that's on you. That's not on me. Yes. And who is the guy that I'm just looking at? There was this liberal guy that that juxtaposed your comments mm-hmm. on this with Ezra Levant, who is actually agreeing with Friedland about the whole Black Ribbon Day and being like, I think this is good and I agree with it. Oh, yeah. And, Some sp- and then said, smooth- this, is, this is proof that the far right and the far left are just the exact same. A couple just smooth drawing brain. completely wrong conclusions from this whole thing. Yeah, a couple smooth brain liberals did that. Stephen Carter, I think, is the one you're thinking of. He's a, a prominent kind of Alberta-based uh, like political strategist. He has a podcast called The Strategists uh, as well. And he was like the chief of staff to like... Alison Redford, if you want to go back and four or five premiers back in Alberta's history. Um, yeah, but yeah, essentially like not even reading like like I mean, this is a, a problem uh, for a lot of things, but people just like reacting to something and like this yes. is how I feel about it. I feel that horseshoe theory is real. So I'm going to make this uh, this comparison when it's like, yo, like um uh, Ezra Levant is the one agreeing with Christian Freeland on Black, Black Ribbon Day. I'm the one dragging Christian Freeland yeah. for, for her stance on Black Ribbon Day. Like the centrist and the far right fucking loser are agreeing. Like you're, we're proving fishhook theory here, not yes, fishhook theory. theory. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I also saw your mom got in on the, on the top pile of <laughs> the top pile of the, your statements here. Was that, was that okay? Um, yeah, did you patch on- things up with your mom after? Yeah, we talked about it. I mean, my mom's on Twitter. It's uh, it's 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 not ideal. I mean, she is not, uh, you know, like as deep in the weeds on far right Ukrainian nationalism and Nazi collaborators as I am. And um, yes. but it's like whatever. It's just uh, it's just Twitter, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope I did. I do hope you patched things up with your mom. That was unfortunate. But in any case, like uh, you know. You know, you did you did nothing wrong. You were pointing out a very factual point that I think undermines a lot of what Friedland has to say about uh, her the political project she's pursuing here and abroad. Like I mentioned, uh, when you're when you're unfairly or incorrectly equating the crimes of of Nazis and and uh, communists in the and, and then using your power is controlling our foreign policy to undemocratically overthrow uh so- socialist governments in latin america where canada and the united states have a long history of of doing that and leading to much misery and death and murder and violence um, yeah like you know, speaking speaking that, of fishhook theory right yeah like christopher freeland yeah. was our she was our minister of foreign affairs for a couple of years right and like uh, i don't see really any difference between her support for you know the coups in venezuela and bolivia than you would see from any kind of rabbit, rabid, uh, like between her and Elliot Abrams, let's say, you know, right? Yeah. Like, what's, 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 where is the daylight between their positions? I well, it's one see. thing that, that I find kind of, I guess it's not funny because then maybe that's a bit morbid, but 
the idea of of Trump kind of unexpectedly winning in 2016 and how I think that that kind of whole uh, plan with the Lima group, which, which had been started well before Trump was elected, probably would have been enacted with under President Hillary Clinton as well. Oh, and yeah, probably would have had more of a facade of like this kind of neoliberal, uh, you know, legitimacy to it but because donald trump is donald trump he just has to hire these like fucking cold war monsters from the 80s the exact same people that are directly responsible for human rights atrocities in that area in that area uh in the 1970s and 80s uh and just that that exposed their whole plan for what it really is uh so so clearly but because this this kind of plan was already in place they couldn't really like back out of it so you had Friedland and Trudeau kind of trying to give this progressive veneer to or to the coup that they were trying to participate in but Donald Trump just completely exposed that for being a, just a crass and cynical ploy to uh overthrow the government and install uh a, a neoliberal government that's going to you know be more more friendly to uh like extraction interests here in the United States yeah, I mean, Trump is nothing if not direct in his communications on his kind of like pretty scatterbrained foreign policy. Like, I don't think he has too many kind of strong thoughts either way. But yeah, he just is like, yeah, we're we're doing a coup, baby. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course, but it's like, um, and, and then like Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau are like, you know, kind of tugging at their collars. It's like, no, we're, we're, it's like, we're supporting democracy in the transition to blah, blah, blah. And yeah. It's like, well, like, it just completely, it completely upended the idea that what was happening had anything to do with like the human rights of Venezuelans or any of these kind of, these like, bullshit lies that they tell to try and justify what they're doing. It completely upended all that. Exactly. And, and again, to come back to kind of like fishhook theory, like, like find me the daylight between, you know, uh, Christian Freeland's and our, and our federal liberal government's policy on, you know, um, South American coups of socialist leaning governments. And like, for instance, our new, uh, elected leader of the conservative party of Canada, you know, Aaron O'Toole. Yes. And he was even the foreign affairs critic as well. Yeah, but yeah, like you pointed out, there's very little daylight between their actual positions on this. Um, it's not like a, it's not like if the conservative government had been in in charge uh, as that was taking place, like they would have done anything differently. In fact, they probably would have, would have just gone more in the Trump direction and been more overt about uh, about what their their goals were. Uh, but that was an that was an excellent segue to Aaron O'Toole because that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about on this uh, show today, because of course we had the conservative uh, leadership. Uh, contest this week that's been kind of uh, a few months in the making since since the uh, election and um, you know obviously I'm very plugged into these conversations and I know exactly who all you know what these people are about and uh, the the intricacies of the conservative power struggle but like pretending that I'm I have no clue what Aaron O'Toole's deal is or what he's about what can you tell us um, uh, about about the new leader of the Conservative Party and and how he ended up uh, winning this position in this leadership contest. Yeah, I mean, with the caveat that this is all very distant analysis, and and my kind of analysis of conservative politics is is uh, not any anything with like where I talk to people or actually kind of deeply consider these issues because fuck those guys. But yeah, that's I, like, I try I, I try to avoid talking to conservatives myself, so that's yeah, not uh, yeah. wouldn't hold that against you. Exactly. But I did call it for O'Toole from the beginning, and I called it for O'Toole from the beginning because of uh, the fact that he had uh, Jeff Ballingall on his team. And Jeff Ballingall is the guy behind kind of 
Alberta Proud, Canada Proud, Ontario Proud, all the various Proud properties and their yes. re- related bullshits. And I, and I think, and I think the the power and the influence of of those Prouds is definitely, I think, overstated by the media and kind of political operatives in the context of general elections. Um, and even provincial elections, I think I think their influence and power to actually move voters is overstated. But I think in the instance of something like a conservative leadership race, that is the like highest leverage point for what those uh, kind of Facebook properties do, which is essentially kind of build massive lists of likely conservative members. And uh, you know exactly what makes them mad and what they respond to and the messaging and the the uh, the things that will get them to click. Uh, because the the conservative party at this moment uh, is really just a you know a collective mass of angry people on angry old white people on Facebook, right? Yes, and and that is what the Prouds are speaking to, and that's what they are manipulating, and that's what they're that's the content that they're producing is is, is designed to inflame the like lizard brain part of those people. And so, um, yeah, when I learned that Jeff Ballingall was a part of O'Toole's campaign. I definitely clocked that as like, oh, that's important. And then the other thing that I think led to O'Toole's win was that he and his team made the right overtures to social conservatives to uh, essentially say, essentially give them the Harper treatment. I won't kick you out of the party, but maybe I'll give you something you want, maybe. <laughs> and I'll say the yeah. words that you want to hear. But it was it, much like in Shear's election, it was the case of the social conservatives being the kingmaker again. Uh, you know, I get the emails from, I, because I am a sucker for punishment and because these are the people I keep track of. I, I, I get the emails from, uh, anti-abortion, uh, campaign groups, uh, like right now is one, I get another one called, uh, the Wilberforce project, which is an Alberta based one. And these two anti-abortion groups, and I assume very many other kind of like outwardly evangelical Christian, uh, and hardcore Christian kind of conser- uh, conservative political groups, essentially they were saying, fill out your ballot like this it would be sloan lewis or lewis and sloan and then o'toole is your third and then leave uh leave mckay off your ballot altogether and so based on that guidance i don't think how you can look at the results and how the kind of third ballot played out and just not see the social conservatives uh, of the conservative party being kingmaker once again it was how it worked for uh it was how it worked for sheer too it was those votes that put him over bernier because bernier was definitely not a socom yeah. So what does this, what do you think this means for the conservative movement in this country? Because I think since I've started doing this show, I've been kind of waiting for our Trump moment for like the conservative movement to really fall off the cliff and really just embrace this kind of id. Um, I, I don't get the impression that Aaron O'Toole is that exactly, but is it kind of a step in that direction? Uh, especially when you, you you know talk about his, his associations with Ontario proud and these like these like right wing meme groups on Facebook. I think like, to, to um, quote to quote Joe Biden, I don't think anything will fundamentally change here. Like I think I think O'Toole is very much going to run the Conservative Party like Andrew Scheer ran the Conservative Party, and I think they're just going to run back the same campaign they ran in the last election and just kind of hope they get five more seats in the like nine oh five or whatever. You know, like uh, yeah. I don't think like the Conservatives have a one in four shot of winning almost any Canadian federal election, and that is because they have a very kind of strong rump kind of donor and voter base of around, you know, say 25%. Uh, and then, uh, say 25, yeah, they're like voter bases say around 25 and they have people who will give them money. Like they raise money like, 
And then the media also automatically treats any leader of the conservative party as a credible prime minister candidate. And that the, those kind of two factors combine to give them that floor of just like, oh, they, they could potentially win any federal election. It really depends on whether the federal liberals are a mess, whether they're infighting or some latest bullshit corruption scandal, uh, or or even if the NDP run a good campaign. Like if you get a couple things and say the, the conservatives run a good campaign, um, you know, they could win. So they don't necessarily have to change very much to potentially take government next election or the election yeah. after that, right? Which is why I don't think you'll see, I mean- you're worried about this kind of like Trump-like populist turn. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, yeah, because I think there's that element in the in this country. The, the, there's there's definitely a group of like right wing. There's like a right wing constituency that definitely I think would appreciate the kind of go ahead from political leaders to just more be more open about their intolerance towards migrants and people of color and indigenous people and drug users and. Those people and, are definitely uh, Conservative Party of Canada members. I mean, oh, absolutely, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I guess, I'm, I'm wondering for when that figure is going to come along. That's going to really give those people the kind of wink that Trump has given to the far right in the U.S. Uh, or if that's, or if it's not possible here, or if we have still kind of a, a vague infrastructure in place to kind of prevent that kind of thing from, from really yeah. spreading here. Yeah. I, I think our, I think our institutions about. are pretty shitty, but, but I mean, Leslie Lewis was essentially that candidate. She, see, she had essentially her essential kind of like hook to voters and why she did so well in Alberta and Saskatchewan was uh, no more hidden agenda. Just like, just say you're going to criminalize abortion, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just like, like that's, that was her. We're just, we're just going to stone gay people. I mean, she didn't literally say that that's an exaggeration, but like, uh, that was still part of the hidden agenda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but like her whole shtick was, and, and one that really flew under the radar of Canadian media, to be honest, was like how fucking radical her, uh, her policy was and what she was campaigning on was, it was like, it was literal mask off, like social conservative, like in his name fucking uh gilead stuff sure. and and no one really kind of clocked that and it's just like oh here's a you know black woman toronto lawyer running and like the she didn't run on the fact that she was a black woman or toronto lawyer like she ran on the fact that she was uh unapologetically going to give socons whatever the fuck they wanted yeah. <laughs> and uh and she got a uh, second place in alberta and she won saskatchewan you know like uh, well, wasn't there a part of that ballot where she was leading at one point as well? There was some uh, kind of weird trick with the ballot that ended up. I didn't see that, but I mean, she did, okay. she did better than expected. Right. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that is the kind of narrative that comes out of this. And I think she's going to have a prominent place uh, in the conservative party as it moves forward, which maybe speaks to your concerns. Um, you know, I think, I think there are some historical things that make it hard for that type of thing to win specifically like Quebec uh, existing. Um, I don't see how Leslie Lewin's Lewis led conservative party does anything in Quebec, but I mean, again, I'm just some fucking idiot from the prairies with a communications degree. Like, I don't know. Shit. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's, I guess I say it's disappointing to hear you, uh, diminish the, the career of another potential girl boss, uh, in our political, uh, <laughs> life. So I'm going to need you to do better on that, unfortunately, but, um, no, I think that's it. I, I think, um, it's something that I've been concerned with. Uh, I always get the sense that we're sort of just a few years behind where America is politically. Uh, and in that sense, the Trudeau is kind of like our Obama figure. And we all, we all remember how that went. Um, but uh, that's it. It kind of changed when, when Trudeau won re-election. That was kind of the main thing that I was kind of not expecting. So 
it's it's I, it's something that I'm concerned with, but I'm still not sure what the what the result's going to be. But um, I guess that's that's what, another thing I was wondering though, because as much as Trudeau has been enmeshed in this this scandal, the Wee scandal, um, which I feel like in previous eras probably would have toppled a lot of prime ministers. Yeah, can I? Can he, I, I got a I got a riff on the Wee scandal that I got to get out. Oh, okay, sure. Which, Let's hear it. which, which, which is this this idea that like it's this like total kid glove like kindergarten scandal that it's this like small ball. Oh, it's so Canadian. Look at your stupid Canadian scandals compared to you know whatever latest crime Donald Trump is doing. Yeah, no, I'm the, not saying that. I know, I know, but like this is this is the discourse how it's been Canada. downplayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly by you know the, the, our baby brained kind of mainstream Canadian media. This is not a very complicated corruption case. This is a dodgy organization directly paying off family members of the prime minister and and it sounds like the finance minister to get a huge no bid government contract. Like that's like yeah. that's like textbook fucking corruption. Like you don't have to get into the details of like this person or this organization paid this person to speak or whatever. Like fuck the details. That's all you have to say. A dodgy organization directly paid the the members of the prime family members of the prime minister, and the end result was they got a huge fucking no bid contract worth what forty million dollars, forty two million dollars, yeah. or something. Doing like. work that the fucking government should just be doing on their own in the first place, that they don't need to to contract these weird, uh, like Coney twenty twelve ass like private charities to do. Exactly right, and and so like there's a reason, like there is a reason why the finance minister resigned. It wasn't just because it was like uh, a thing, like it wasn't just a personality conflict between the two. Though there probably likely was, um, it's because this was a serious fucking issue. This was a big corruption scandal, yeah. And uh, and I think the media and the kind of discourse did not treat it as such. Yeah, no, I agree. Um... I agree. And yeah, it was interesting to see any time like Jagmeet Singh or anyone in the NDP brought this up, this like very real and troubling corruption scandal just being dismissed as like, oh, you're you're the exact same as the conservatives. You're, as a, you're as a lifelong NDP voter, I am disappointed in you, Jagmeet, for yeah. saying this objectively true thing. Those are the most yeah. perhaps the most annoying uh, people on uh, the, the hell site that is Twitter.com. Yeah, exactly. But so despite all this, and I think you're right that it's been downplayed by people in the media, uh, interestingly, um, but throughout all this crisis, uh, the whole pandemic and everything that's happened over the last uh, six months or so, um, Trudeau has, I believe his popularity has just increased, um, partially because he's been using ideas that the NDP has been floating and kind of pushing him on as part of his COVID response, like the CERB. Uh, and the you know the various ways they've responded to that uh, in a productive way. And if there was ever the, a time for mild social democracy, it would be in the middle of a fucking global pandemic. Yeah. And, yes. Yes. But now he's in this situation where okay, so he's, he's prorogued parliament, and the word like what they're saying is that we're going to come back with like a big bold progressive agenda, and because partially because I think he sees that he's kind of losing confidence of people, um, maybe senses that he could be vulnerable, and and wants to now go ahead with kind of like what they're framing as like a populist kind of progressive economic plan. How do you see that working up for Trudeau and the liberal party? Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the caveat here is that yeah. I live in Alberta and federal politics, a fucking joke. And that like, we have one non-conservative member of parliament out of, I don't know, 30 MPs or something. Uh, so like they're largely a bore and I try not to pay attention to them because there's no real local action. So with that out of the way, um, uh, 
I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's happened before in history, which is, you know, a good indication of things happening in the future. Like if there could be a a national childcare program, a pharma care program that, you know, Trudeau uses to uh, improve people's lives because uh, you know, that this is a time, this is the time to do something. Right. Uh, whether it will be good. I mean, no, it just won't be good. Like it'll be run by the federal (laughs) liberals and it will be fucking triangulated and, and means tested to death. Means tested. Um, Uh, but, uh, it might, it might improve people's materials conditions more than, you know, the, the shit that, that they're already in, um, which is probably all the best you can hope for from the liberals. But I, I, I could see it, but I mean, he's also, Trudeau's also all talk, you know, he's the, he's the fake woke prime minister guy. Uh, so sure. like he could, it could all just be fucking messaging and bullshit, which is something that they love doing too. So like, I don't, and again, I don't have any insight in the federal liberals. I don't talk to those people. Like I don't pay attention. I'm not in Ottawa. I'm very far yeah. away on the prairies dealing with our own, uh, very bad, uh, regional politics and, uh, and our premier and Jason Kenney. Well, in terms of like a possible economic response, I don't know if this is going to happen. Um, I'm not sure I, I believe that, but this idea of of continuing the CERB or the CERB uh, indefinitely and creating some kind of a basic income, that's picking up steam on the NDP side. Um, yeah, I think that's very possible. Um, I would love to see it, obviously. Anything that, that can make people less precarious, full support. Yeah. Yeah, I was just looking up the MP. Um, oh, Heather McPherson's idea was it? Yes, she's, yeah, she's exactly. The, Alberta, the, Alberta, the lone tiny spot of orange in the sea of blue and, and on the prairies. Well, uh, Leah, Leah Gazan also, who tabled a motion in the House of Commons uh, to convert it into a, a guaranteed level of basic income. Like in terms of your, like regardless of like how um, how politically possible that is, like in terms of what you see as like a, social democratic response. Cause there's been kind of like a, a debate about basic income on the left and whether this is just something that's going to kind of allow this zombie exploitative capitalism to continue and kind of placate people or whether that's something that, that the left a project that the left should be pursuing. Like where do, where do you, where do you stand on that? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I, I've seen the arguments on both sides, and uh, I think on the whole, I would rather have it than not. I mean, we are not in power, right? Like leftists are not in power. So it's a question of what can you get? And if this is a thing that you can get, I think you probably fight for it. I think it's, it's, it, it is not the game changer uh, that we would want it to be. And like true liberation comes from, you know, actual uh, liberatory and revolutionary movements and direct action and being in the streets and, you know, yeah, assuming the means, uh, control of the means of production, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, with that out of the way, like, I think I'm broad. I think I, I think I lean towards UBI rather than not. Yeah. just, I, I will say just as a, I, I've been, as a, someone who's benefited from the Serb, it has been just like an interesting experience to just have that, kind of because I'm a freelancer you know I don't I don't make a lot of money uh annually so as such uh even though I'm in a pretty stable situation you know with my family and my partner and everything I still have deal with a lot of like precarity in terms of like how I'm going to pay my bills and and all that and just like having that be alleviated for a few months was 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 like very revealing to say like oh because you know there's there's many people in this country that are that are hurting far far worse than me obviously and the idea that we could have a government program that really like 
doesn't just like you know give people fucking tax credits or some you know, yeah. means test is bullshit here's cash but yeah, just exactly. gives people a way to just completely alleviate that kind of stress they have about their material conditions like there is something kind of like uh, oh, yeah. powerful about that i think huge huge i mean my partner works in theater there's not a lot of fucking theater going on right now and so uh, the serve was a fucking godsend for her right and so uh, I definitely, I like, it's, you know, it's probably a temporary measure, you know, much like the, the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, but, uh, towards kind of full scale liberation. But I, 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 I tend to lean towards, towards a, a UBI or something like a UBI rather than not, though I do understand, uh, the arguments against. Yeah. And, 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 and if there's going to be a UBI here or anywhere, it needs to be done in conjunction with a robust welfare state and and healthcare yeah. in conjunction and all these with different you know, things. Free transit these, and pharmacare. Yeah, and free transit care. exactly. Because yeah. there's a whole libertarian movement that has kind of adopted this from the right as a way of kind of abolishing the welfare state. And yeah, that would just, be a that would be just, a fucking disaster. Let's just fire every social worker and get rid of every program and uh, yeah. and yeah, and just have UBI. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the like the shithead side of the UBI argument, which is the which is the one that I mean you're you're people are right to be wary of and suspicious of yeah, quite frankly right? exactly well um Duncan thanks for thanks for coming on the show and talking to me about all these things um uh, it was great to it was great to catch up with you thanks thank for, you for thanks for joining us thank you for having me it's been a pleasure do you just want to let everyone know where they can find your work and whether they can follow you and and back you up the next time you get dogpiled by uh, weird uh, Canadian liberals of course uh on Twitter <laughs> I, you can reach me at Duncan Kinney uh, D-U-N-C-A-N-K-I-N-N-E-Y uh, not Kenny. I am Kenny with an I. Um, and the organization I work for is called Progress Alberta. That's just at Progress Alberta on Twitter. We're on Facebook, Instagram, all the other things. Uh, the thing that we are really kind of spending our time on, especially over the fall as we relaunch and pivot, is uh, the pro- theprogressreport.ca, and that is our media project. That is essentially it's a, like a newsletter podcast plus kind of investigative news outfit. We cover you know politics, social movements, and media out here in Western Canada. And, um, you know, uh, if you're out here in Western Canada, give it a follow, uh, donate to us. Obviously, if you, uh, like the work we do, like the story we just broke on Edmund city of Edmonton's new tank. So that, that's, uh, those are my plugs. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. It was great to talk to you, Duncan. And, uh, I'll talk to you later. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.